I want to talk a little bit about the fast that's going to start after Easter, and then we're going to dive into the word, but want to give you a little bit of a focus. Um, for those of you that have not fasted, or this is all kind of new, if you don't have a focus, let me just tell you, you will quit. I just, you will quit a fast because what will happen is you'll wake up in the middle of the night and you'll be hungry and you'll say, why am I doing this? And because you don't have a reason, you'll just eat. That's, that's just the way our, our human minds work. So I want to give you a fact, a uh, focus. We're going to talk about these kind of all the way through the fast. My hope would be that these would get so ingrained in you that halfway through the fast, if we were to poke you in the middle of the night, you would wake up and sit and you would blurt out these three things. They'd be like that, that core ingrained, because if you get these in you, you will persevere, however you determine that, you, that you're going to fast. Kind of a threefold way of fasting. One, personally, I want to encourage us to fast for increased tenderness before the Lord. Uh, you know, if you followed the Lord for, for a long time, your tenderness towards him, it kind of waxes and wanes. There are times when you feel his presence very closely. The other times where things feel a little distant, we are going to fast so that our hearts grow tender towards him. And we recognize his presence uh, more often than not. And in doing that, some of you are going to find spots in your heart that you haven't visited for a while. That idea of asking him to increase tenderness in your heart is going to lead some of you to have conversations that you've avoided because you realize, oh, there are people that I need to extend forgiveness to, or there are people that I need to get right with because my tenderness to the, before the Lord hinges on that. And so it's not just a Lord bless me thing. It's Lord, uh, make me tender so that I can hear the things that you want to speak to me. So we're going to fast that we become tender before the Lord. Corporately or as a church, we are going to fast for direction and opportunities for ministry, along with leaders to rise up to carry those ministries. Now, our numbers are not that huge. So in asking, Lord, send someone to do something, realize you're putting a target on your back because he very well might say, you're the one I'm asking to do this. Some of us are going to come out of this fast with a deep desire and a hunger to do things that we just didn't have going in. That's, that's how he works. So we're going to pray that he would lead us into greater ministry opportunities as a church body, whatever that looks like. Personally, for tenderness, as a church, for greater ministry opportunities and to raise up people to do it. And then on a larger scale, we want to pray for hunger to rise up among the Jewish people to know their Messiah. You know, for most of church history, there's been a demonic tension within the church compiled mostly of Gentiles and God's chosen people, the Jews. And we've all suffered from level at some level for it. They have been oppressed and we have been incomplete without that part of our history and our heritage. And God gives us this great, beautiful picture of Gentile, not gentle, but Gentile affection towards the Jewish people in the story of Ruth, this Gentile woman who told her Jewish mother-in-law, where you go, I'll go. Where you'll all, your people will be my people. And through that devotion, Ruth gained redemption. We are believing that in our devotion to pray for the people of Israel, there will be widespread revival among them and that we'll see a harvest as well. That's just the way God's economy works. You sow into others and you reap. Ruth dedicated her life to the Jewish people through her mother-in-law, and she was able to reap grain and eventually gain a kinsman redeemer and get a husband from that. Now, can we be saved without the Jewish people? Well, yes, we can, but how many more will be saved if there's an awakening among them? So these are the three things that we really want to lean into. Tenderness before the Lord, 
the next steps of, of development for our own church, for the bridge, and for uh, the Jewish people. And we're going to do this in a couple different ways. Uh, we'll be talking about these things a lot. But in addition to fasting, April 5th through the 25th, as the Lord leads you, uh, we're going to be meeting twice a week for live in-person prayer meetings on Tuesday and on Friday nights. Uh, I don't imagine that, that many will be at all of those. You, you might, but I would say as we go into these, begin now to make a mental commitment to what you want to try and be at on a Tuesday and a Friday night. Our normal Friday online meeting, we will just do in person. In those meetings, we want to worship together, we want to pray together, and we want to process together what we feel the Lord is uh, speaking to us. It's the best way to get the kind of the collective word of the Lord to a group is for a group to talk. It's not for one guy to go off to the mountain and come back and say, this is what he's saying to all of us. It's for all of us to discuss. So there'll be some worship time, some prayer time, and kind of some debriefing of what we've heard from the Lord. We're going to do these at Joel Richardson's studio where we met uh, before the election for some prayer times on Tuesday and on Friday nights between uh, April 5th, which I think is a Monday, through the 25th. Uh, and again, let me just encourage you to, in the next day or two, make your mental commitment of this is what I'm going to do. If you wait to the moment, should I go tonight? Should I not go tonight? Mostly you won't go tonight. I mean, that's just how, how things are. So kind of determine in your heart, this is how I want to be involved in that. This week, as I uh, told you, if you were not on, grab your Bibles and turn to uh, Luke 19. That's primarily where we're going to be. Looking at the Palm Sunday story and the triumphal return of Jesus. Now understand here at this point, he has been ministering for three years and things are coming to a boil. The Jewish religious leaders and the Roman political leaders are mystified by him. Some want to deal with him. Others want to ignore him. But he wants to, he wants to press in and uh, things are coming to a head. And rather than evading the tension with the entry to Jerusalem, he steps into it. Now, the latest trend that we hear so much about among policing, and there's probably something to it, is the idea of de-escalation, de-escalation training, how to step into a difficult situation and calm everybody down and bring things to a, to a calm end. And there are times where Jesus does de-escalate things. In Luke 4, the religious leaders of the day get very irritated with him. And if you read the passage in Luke 4, it's funny because you can't tell if they're mad at him because he healed somebody or because he didn't heal everybody. <laughs> it talks about both things. It says he healed some, then it says he didn't heal everybody. And it's not clear what they're upset about. It's, it's the beauty of leadership. Uh, no matter what you do, there are people probably that are upset on, on both sides. And that's exactly what happens to Jesus there. And in Luke 4, 29 and 30, it says they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down off a cliff. So they take Jesus and they're, they're ready to kill him. And the next verse says, but passing through their midst, he went away. Doesn't say exactly how that happened. It doesn't say if supernaturally he was hidden. Doesn't Maybe there was just chaos. And he's, But whatever the case, Jesus a number of times chose to de-escalate the situation rather than escalate it. Jesus knew there was a time to calm things down. But in this passage of Luke 19, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it's not one of those times. This time, Jesus turns the amplifier up to 11, broadcasting his intentions. 
This is really the pre-story of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Had he not entered Jerusalem the way he did, Jesus might have been able to continue to fly under the radar, continue to heal a few people, continue to have some little preaching meetings, and there may have been political-minded disciples who would have approved of that. Had they known where this was going, there might have been a couple of disciples that, you know, you know, maybe it would be better if we just kept things quiet and we continued to minister as we are. Jesus wouldn't have it. This event puts him front and center, not just on God's agenda, but on the minds of the people who love him and on the minds of the people who hate him. What we see Jesus do in Luke 19 to descend from the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem in the week before his crucifixion is one of the most layered, rich events in the Bible. The next week, Holy Week, is full of meaning, but going into it, it would appear to outsiders that his only purpose is to go to celebrate the Passover. Well, of course, he's going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover like any young Jewish man would do. The meal commemorating the death angel passing over the homes of the Jews in Egypt after they applied the blood of the lamb to the doorposts. Last night was the beginning of the celebration of Passover to, to modern Jews. Why does he do this at the beginning of Passover? Well, Jesus is the king of glory, but he is also the king of timing. Some of you know, if you're painfully aware, if you're waiting for something, that Jesus's timing is very distinct. And he does this on this week as a demonstration because he will forever change the Passover celebration for those who understand what he is doing. He does this to make true what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, Paul writes, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. He says, yeah, observe Passover, but not with the old leaven, not with the old baggage that we used to celebrate it with, the leaven of malice and of evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he chooses this in timing to enter and to escalate things so that he can be pictured as the Passover lamb. We're going to use a lot of scripture this morning, but I need a few minutes to set up the scene. So primarily, as I said, stay in Luke 19 and leave it there. I want to give you two lists this morning, a, uh, a short list of um, what it means that he does this. But I also want before that uh, a list of kind of kind of what's going on and setting the steps. So this is this first list, this list of three is kind of the three layer bean dip of, of Palm Sunday. This is what's going on, multiple others layers that you might not see initially. First of all, Palm Sunday, his entry into Jerusalem is a historic and a historical event. When you say, Randy, isn't that the same thing? We use those words interchangeably. Yes and no. It, it's not exactly the same thing. It is historical in the sense that it really happened. No serious archaeologist or historian doubts this. It is on history's timeline as distinctly as any other event. They may argue about Jonah and the whale and when that happened. They may argue about if Job was a real man or if that was just a story. But no modern historian debates that this happened. It happened in history. It is historical. Uh, through the chapters of the, the uh, Gospels, Matthew 21, Mark 11, John 12, Luke 19, they all talk about it 
with surprisingly very little variance. You know, if you read different stories from the gospel, sometimes they give you a different angle on it. You might get a few more details from one chapter than the other, but of all the stories that they tell, this is the one that they tell probably the most consistently. It is a historical event that nobody argues about. So it's historical, but it's, it's also historic. When something is historic, it stands out among historical events. Why was this event historic? Why does it stand out among all the other events? You have to understand that Jerusalem was occupied territory, territory at this point. It was under the rule of the Romans, and it had been under the rule of the Romans for about 90 years. Few people who were alive remembered life any other way. Think of things that have happened in your adult life that you look back and you kind of forget that life was any different, okay? You remember when you used to get the email, you had to actually make sure nobody was on the phone, okay? You had to make sure everybody's off the phone and plug in, we make all that terrible noise and you'd, you know, take you, take you uh, 20 minutes to get the three email you got that day. That, that was, now our kids don't remember that. When you describe that to your children, they don't even know what a landline is. They don't they have no comprehension of what that was like. That was only 15, 20 years ago. For 90 years, they had been under the oppression of the Roman people. Young people in the crowd were third generation people who'd lived under that occupied force. If grandpa were alive, he might remember stories of how it was different. Okay. They had been conquered for a long time. But even a conquering force faces a conundrum. The Romans had issues to deal with. Every occupying force throughout history has had to wrestle with the same issue. When you conquer a land and when you occupy a land, what do you do with the people that you conquer? One of the most difficult questions in the Pacific theater of World War II was, when we reach Japan, what do we do with the Japanese? Because as we marched across the Pacific Islands, we would drive them back, continually drive them back, and we would uh, kind of inherit the, the local indigenous people who were neutral or often very happy to see the Americans. But as we got closer to Japan, we increasingly asked, okay, what do we do when we, we occupy Japan? What do you do with the Japanese? They will not be as easily pacified as every other island in the Pacific has been. And it influenced how we responded near the end of World War II. So 90 years into Roman occupation, the Romans are still dealing with the Jews. They still have to manage these people who don't want them there. The arrangement between the occupying Roman force and the resident Jews was really complex. And here's what they landed on. The Jews were allowed their social and religious activities while the Romans manipulated the law and the government. And the fact that the Jews had maintained their culture for 90 years while under the oppression of the Romans, speaks to their resilience, but it also plays to the fact that the Romans kind of played them like puppets and allowed them to have a little bit of freedom without actually giving them the freedom to govern themselves. The Jews were allowed to have a place and a presence and worship, but yet soldiers could command any Jewish resident to do anything they wanted, including carry their pack for a mile. When we read in the Bible, it says if someone tells you to carry the load for a mile, carry it too. That was in reference to the, Jew, the Roman tradition of having Jewish citizens carry their pack for a mile. For a Jewish man to enter into the city of Jerusalem as people cried out allegiance to him, Hosanna, it was hard to ignore because to the Romans, that would have been a major political threat. Remember, this isn't baby Jesus meek and mild. 
This is a man in his 30s with the arms of a carpenter and the following of a revolutionary, and he's riding into town to the cheers of the crowd. Jesus did not do this by happenstance. It was intentional, and it was provocative. He escalated the tension of the day. He didn't wander into Jerusalem. When Jesus got the donkey and said, let's ride in, he was no under, under no illusion that he might sneak quietly in. Maybe nobody will notice. He knew this would cause significant noise. You know, to paraphrase William Wallace, he was going to pick a fight, but he was doing it unarmed on a donkey. It was a historical event, and it was a historic event. Second layer of this Palm Sunday bean dip is it was a spiritual act. It has great spiritual significance because it dealt with authority, and the very nature of authority is spiritual. It's why First Peter chapter 2 says no authority exists under what God has put in place. That's why elections matter. That's why coming into agreement with certain political characters matter, because authority is knit to spirituality. And as he marches into the city, some people's eyes are opened to the truth that Jesus is king, although they're not really sure of what kind of king that he is. They welcomed King Jesus into Jerusalem, but they imagined a coming rebellion that would overthrow the Romans. A revolt against the Romans was too small for Jesus. He wasn't riding in to overthrow the Romans. He was riding in to overthrow hell. But just because they didn't understand the full significance doesn't dilute the significance of the event. It's tempting to look at those that are crying Hosanna and expecting a political revolution and say, can you not see what Jesus is doing here? It's tempting almost to be surprised that they would see it that way. But in reality, spiritual awakening often happens in stages. What you're learning about Jesus right now is part of what you will learn. We will learn about Jesus for the rest of our eternal lives. And so they've got a partial revelation of who he is, but it's not fully. But it's definitely a spiritual act as he marches in. So it's historic and historical. It's a spiritual act. And the third layer of the, the whole bean dip is it is a prophetic act. It was prophetic for him to ride into Jerusalem in the sense that it made known the plan of God. God has a plan, and he reveals it to man. All of the big biblical occurrences of life have some level of foreshadowing before them. Amos, my favorite minor prophet, the, the farmer prophet who didn't want to be a prophet, says in Amos 3, 7 and 8, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? This thing had been prophesied and had been spoken of long before. Just as Christ's birth was communicated multiple times through the Old Testament, it might not have been obvious at the time, but when it happened, anyone with a heart could recognize to what it meant. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem foreshadowed or pointed to his triumphal re-entry, whereas the Bible teaches he will stand again on the Mount of Olives at the end of the age. This was the foreshadowing of that. Some of you are thinking, Randy, do you relate everything to the end of the age? The entire Bible is pointing that direction. That's where this story is going. His entry on Palm Sunday was prophetic. It had meaning in the moment. It has meaning for us, and it has meaning in the future. This is not a casual donkey ride. This event echoes in the heavens and in the earth into the future. So here's what happens, okay? He arrives, and what happens on the way is laden with meaning. Here are five things we can glean from this story about the heart of Jesus. First of all, 
He comes in peace. Very important. And he does this very intentionally. Luke 19, 29 through 31. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say that the Lord needs it. Now, I think sometimes we miss how unusual it is that he chose to ride into Jerusalem, okay? Uh, as a kid, my dad really hated long hair, okay? Um, he would probably be very pleased with how I ended up because he just, he hated long hair. My hair never got that long, but it was too long for him. And he used to tell me the story about a kid who had long hair and wanted his dad to buy him a car. And the dad didn't like the long hair and told the kid, you know, I don't know about a car. He, he finally told him, why don't you take your Bible and read it every day for 90 days and do everything that it says. And the kid said, okay. And so then we'll talk about a car. So at the end of 90 days, the boy came to his father and he said, you know, I, I actually enjoyed that. I read the Bible every day for 90 days and I learned a lot about Jesus and I've learned a lot. I read a lot of other ancillary books. And he goes, dad, you know, it's interesting. Jesus had long hair. And uh, his father thought about it for a moment. He goes, yeah, and he walked everywhere too. It's like, you're not going to get a car. And uh, sorry, that's the way it is. It's funny, but it's true. Jesus walked everywhere. This is really one of the rare occurrences we have of him not walking somewhere. It's interesting. This is the only story in scripture we have on record of him riding on a donkey. The Bible talks about him walking from city to city, sometimes great distances. Why is he riding now? This isn't even that long of a trip. I mean, if you take Google Maps, it's about, about a two-mile trip. It's not like he's trying to get to St. Louis. It's a short ride, but he does it on a donkey. The story is told in all four Gospels that he rides a donkey or a colt through the city from the mountain of olives. It's the only occasion we have mentioned where he rode a donkey and it's not that far. Why is he doing it? He is telegraphing to those around him, his position and his intentions based on how he shows up. If you go to Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, it prophesies of this story. And it says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He comes riding in as a king, as prophesied in Zechariah. Now, it wasn't totally unusual for a king to ride a donkey in those days. In ancient times, kings arrived one of two ways, and you could tell by their approach what they meant. If they went to visit their subjects and they didn't want to frighten them because, oh, here comes the king, they would ride on a donkey because if they rode in on a donkey, they came in peace. If they ride in on a horse, they were coming to conquer. They were coming as a man of war. Much of the story in the Bible is about the arrival of a king, and the way he arrives tells us what's about to happen. By riding down the Mount of Olives on a colt, he signals his kingship and that peace is at hand to people in a way that they never, ever imagined it. And as he rides in, they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's a word so ubiquitous in our Christian culture that we don't even think about what it means, but it had one meaning in those days. It meant, please save, please save. We envision them as happy worshipers. They are desperate people. 
They're not singing and waving synchronized palm branches like some sort of up with people demonstration. I just dated myself. Nobody under 50 knows what up with people is. You can Google it later. But it wasn't some sort of musical song and dance. They were starving people clamoring to the side of the truck that had just carried in food. Save us. Jesus was bringing them freedom in the form of redemption. The redemption that the Jews were familiar with up until now was based on a series of rules and rituals. But even with the sacrifices, you never really got rid of your sin. Your sin wasn't removed. It was covered. If you're taking notes, write the word kafar, K-A-P-H-A-R, K-A-P-H-A-R. That was the Hebrew word for atonement. In the Old Testament, they used the words kafar, and it meant covering, not total removal. When God spoke about building the ark, he told him to cover it with pitch. He told Noah, and the word he used was kafar, cover it up, seal it. The Jews had this idea of their sins being covered, but never really removed. How would you like it? If everything you have ever done wrong was written in a book and someone said, we'll just put it on a shelf, it'll be safe there. You won't have to worry about it. You're like, no, 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 no. I want the book. I want to destroy the book. I don't want to record it and stick it somewhere. That was the Jewish concept of atonement. Remembering this idea of it being a prophetic act, pointing to a second thing that hasn't yet transpired Jesus will ride down this hill again, a returning king, but this time he'll come on a horse. Revelation 19.11 says, Now he saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus was giving illustration to the fact, I'm coming in peace this time, and I'm coming to offer you an atonement to save you that is different than what the historic Jewish people have talked about as something saving them. This is not atonement in the sense of covering your sins. This is taking away your sins so that when I return on a horse, you and I are in right relationship. This coming, though, is not that coming. This coming signifies an opportunity for saving grace. This time he comes on a donkey or a foal that he comes in peace. This was good news to those who did not know him. But no doubt about it, he comes in the manner of a king. So he comes in peace, but the second thing is he comes in the manner of a king. Luke 19, 35 and 36. They brought it to Jesus, referring to the foal or the colt. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. So here he is riding into Jerusalem. And rather than allowing the donkey to walk in the dirt, they're putting their coats down. Other Gospels fill in more details, mentioning the cloaks as well as palm branches or leaves from palm trees. That's where we get the Palm Sunday tradition. This was highly unusual, but it was not an unknown event. It didn't happen to many people, let alone often, but it was an act that was not lost on people. It was one of those things that seems like a mystery to us, but made perfect sense to them. Because when the coats and the palm fronds were being laid down before him, Both Jesus and the people doing it were remembering a very specific story from 2 Kings. In the book of 2 Kings, Elisha is prophesying against the evil regime of Ahab and Jezebel. And the Lord tells Elisha, tuck your coat in your belt, 
and run with this flask of olive oil to Ramoth Gilead. So Elisha tucks his coat in, he runs there, and when he gets there, there's a military camp. It's a Jewish military camp or Hebrew military camp. And he finds the officer's mess where the army officers are sitting. And he says, I have a message from the, for the commander. Jehu is the commander of the Jewish army at this point. And he stands up and he takes Elisha off to the side. And Elisha dumped the bottle of oil on Jehu's head. And he declares him to be the king of Israel. He is in, in effect is giving God's stamp of approval on a coup. And he tells Jehu that he is to overthrow the house of Ahab. Second Kings 9, 11 to 13. Now take in mind, the prophet runs into the tent, says, I need to speak to the commander, takes the commander out back, dumps oil over his head, said, you're supposed to overthrow Ahab. We go to verse 11. When Jehu went to his fellow officer, so he returns to the mess, sits down to finish his sandwich. One of them asks, is everything all right? What did this maniac come to you for? Jehu replies, ah, oh, you know the man, you know the sort of things he says, you know, he's a crazy prophet, you know, he doesn't want to get into it. The other commanders say, no, 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 that's not true. Tell us what happened here. I can just see Jehu sighing. It's like he doesn't necessarily even want to lean into this, but he says, here's what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet, and they shouted, Jehu is king. Say, why, why is this important? Who cares how Jesus rolls into town? Nobody, unless he comes in this way. If he walks into town, nobody cares. But if he comes in riding on a donkey with people spreading their coats in front of him, yelling, Hosanna, save us. He could have arrived a hundred different ways. But he walks in this way on a donkey with people shouting, save us, throwing their coats at his feet like the Jews did last time that a king arose unexpectedly to overthrow an ungodly Ahab. It's like people are watching this going, oh, this happened once before when an unlikely king came in and overthrew an evil force. Short of riding in with an armed force, this was the most provocative thing that Jesus could have done. He's been to Jerusalem before. There was never a fuss. But this time people are recognizing this is the new king. Most of us cannot multitask as well as we think we can. Everybody thinks they can do multiple things pretty well at the same time. We really can't. But Jesus here is doing two things at once very well. First of all, he is allowing people to see who he is in relation to the Romans. He is a Jewish king in a land where a Jewish king is not allowed. Remember, Jerusalem was an occupied city. The Jews had some measure of self-rule in regard to religious traditions, but not in the way of government. That was all in the hands of Caesar. And even though Jesus wasn't planning a political revolution, this had a ramification for the Romans. There was a king on the earth that supersedes the political powers of the nation. So he is rattling the Romans, but he is also yanking the chain of those in religious leadership. The religious leaders of the day ruled the lives of the common people. If you are ruling lives and the people who are subject to you are crying out, please save us to another individual, you have problems. So Jesus rides in like a peaceful king and the Romans begin to quake. But Jesus is looking past the Romans to man's real problem and the Jews begin to quake because he is riding in with authority that they don't have. Rome or government cannot bear the burden of sin or eternity, and neither can the religious elite of Jerusalem. 
Friends, your real problems can't be fixed by government, and they can't be fixed by religious systems. They can only be addressed by the king of peace, who is the source of hope and living water that will spring up within you. That is it. Can government help? Absolutely, there's good government. Can church leadership help? Yes, church leadership can help. But both of those things can also do as much harm or more. The one who brings you life, this gentle king who comes in on a colt, is the only one that can solve your problems. He comes in peace. He comes in king. And third, and this is a twist for him, he comes ready to be acknowledged. This is a new development for Jesus. From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus delayed going public about who he was or what he was doing. And it was a source of frustration both to those who supported him and those who detracted from him because they wanted him to declare his intentions. Now, they're gathering in this story for Passover, but in the past, he had leaned back from any public role at any of the feasts. In John 7, his brothers were goading him about not attending the Feast of the Tabernacles. They're teasing him about it. They're all going up to uh, Judea to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. And in John 7, they say to him, why don't you leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do? Now, they're being sarcastic. They say, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Why don't you... Why don't you take a step out in the public? For even his brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not here for you. Any time will do. Jesus was underscoring the fact that he had a great destiny, and destiny often hinges on timing. The temptation is to hurry it, but it's destiny. It's coming. He regularly told his disciples to keep quiet about who he was. Matthew 25, 12, 16, he warned them. Don't tell the others. Four chapters later, verse 20, he says he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. That's what makes this approach to Jerusalem so unique for his earthly life. As he approaches his entry to the city, something changes, and suddenly he quits silencing those who are recognizing who he is. It's because he understands this salient moment in time, and in simply refusing to stop them, Jesus comes into his own in the public eye. And back in Luke 19, 27 or 37 to 40, when he came near where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all of the miracles they've seen. So the crowd is working itself up into a, almost a frenzy. They're crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Religious leaders come to him and say, hey, call it off. Do what you have done at other times. Tell them to be quiet. Tamp them down. And Jesus responds, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will, rock out, will cry out. Jesus was acknowledging a fact there that praise of the king of the universe is not an option for a created universe. It was inevitable, and if he tells them to be quiet, it springs forth from another direction. The question is never, will Jesus' name be praised? It's, who's going to take the opportunity to do it? You ever think what you would have done in this moment? If you were standing alongside the road, you have some understanding of who this is, would you have joined in or would you have leaned back? Would you have cried Hosanna, or would you have just let it pass? 
what will you do when given an opportunity to worship? That day will come not, not long. Next week, we'll be together. We'll have an opportunity to worship together. To anyone who's ever said, oh, I wish we could just worship and lift our voices together. We're going to do that. We're going to have an opportunity to do that, just like these people. And with the additional benefit of knowing that Jesus didn't just overthrow the Romans, he beat death, hell, and the grave. How will we respond? At some level, the crowd of strangers that we hear about on the side of the hill as he marches down into Jerusalem is stepping into their destiny as the first group of worshipers. How does it feel to be the first group of people who engage in corporate worship? Can you imagine the release of their hearts as they recognize this is what we were made for? If we didn't do this, rocks would do this, and we get to do it now. I don't want to be on the list of people who could be replaced by rocks. I want to engage every time I've given the opportunity for worship. So he comes in peace. He comes as a king. He comes ready to be announced. All these things are stirring, but there is heavy emotion here because the fourth thing is he comes bearing the burden of humanity. Comes bearing the burden of humanity. You know, every president in recent memory has had to deal with stories about the millions of dollars that it counts for them to travel anywhere. You know, anytime a new president, we always talk about how many hundreds of thousand dollars it takes them to do this, this, this. When most kings or presidents or important figures arrive, they impose some sort of burden on those who are subject to them. If a president comes to a city, all the highways get shut down. The burden rests on the people in the way of logistics and on taxes. The people are expected to bear the weight of the leader when he is in their presence. Every president has dealt with complaints of the locals when they traveled. The kingdom of God is upside down in that way. When the king of heaven draws near to the people, he pays the cost of the meeting. And it's never more evident than when he nears the city of Jerusalem. Back in Luke 19, now we're at verse 41, 42. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The Jesus of Palm Sunday is not an aloof character at all. He weeps over the city of Jerusalem for the people. He sees the needs and he feels the needs on their heart, even the ones they don't understand how are going to be answered. And he weeps for those who do not know what is coming. He weeps for those who don't know him. He stands over the city of Jerusalem and he cries, not for the price that he's about to pay. The Bible says that he paid that price with joy, but for those who will not perceive it. There are always people who wonder if God cares about their situation, about their hurts, what's going on in their life. He cares about what you care about, and he cares about the things that you don't even know you should care about. He's standing, looking over Jerusalem, weeping for them, and they don't even know the need that he's crying for. The story of the triumphal entry is the picture of a king coming to us and coming for us and feeling great tenderness for us. The one who hears people yelling, Hosanna, or save us, feels the weight of their pain in a way that they don't even fully understand. He weeps over Jerusalem, his city. But the reason that he weeps over Jerusalem, many of them apply to Kansas City as well. In verse 44, it says, they did not recognize the time of God's coming for them. 
Kansas City, Jesus is coming for you. And even in saying it, he has deep emotion for those who do not know enough to acknowledge his coming. We tend to think that there are those who serve God and those who are just kind of reprobate. And there aren't many that make the trip from one group to the other. We ignore the fact that we made that trip. We just think that, well, people are going to live that way and they're never going to make that transition. Jesus wept at the thought that there might be some that might not make that transition, that it would always be that way because it didn't have to be that way for them. First Timothy 2, 4, and 6 says, talks about God who desires all people be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Here they are at the proper time. He's saying, I'm going to lay down my life for Jerusalem and my heart is so heavy that I weep for them because some of them will not perceive this. One more thing about how he comes. And next week, we'll talk about the price that he paid and the new life that is avail available to him. But there, he, he does something when he rides into town, and I just find it so interesting. He comes to set his house in order. At this point, the crowd imagines what all this means for the Romans. But he doesn't go to the political seat of power. He goes straight to the temple or his father's house. Now, at this point, the practices of the temple were a bit of a train wreck. People were coming from long distances to offer sacrifices for personal sin, and they often had to sacrifice an animal. And uh, for those of you that have traveled with an animal, it can be not fun. And so there always arises a market to make life easier for people. Anytime there's a need, isn't there? And so a market had arisen outside the gates of the temple where you could just travel by yourself and you could buy your sacrifice when you got there. And this little cottage industry had sprung up where you could buy a sacrifice and then you could turn it over to the priest and they could take that sacrifice and they could take it into the temple and they could offer the sacrifice. You could feel better about what had gone on and uh, they could go on to the next person. Here's where the racket came in. The priests were in cahoots with the people selling the sacrifices. So those people would sell the sacrifice, they would hand it over to the priest, the priest would take it in the front of the temple, walk it around the back of the temple, you would go away feeling as if your sins had been atoned for, and they'd walk the animal around and they would sell the same animal to the next person in line. Now, he went supposedly to offer sacrifice. But when he gets there and he sees how casually they are treating this idea of atonement, Matthew 21, 12 and uh, 13, Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. I've heard this used as an argument against a Christian bookstore in a lobby. I've heard people go, oh, you can't buy. And sell. This is not about selling and buying Christian books in the lobby. This is about selling people the idea of atonement. He entered the temple courts, drove out all who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. You're making it a den of robbers. Now, given the current religious climate and the situation in the temple and the calling of Jesus, why did he even bother to go by and set the temple right? At that moment, when Jesus is revealing himself to who he is to so many why, why go back to that old wineskin and, and set things right? Is because Jesus is zealous for how things are handled in his father's house. And he still is. That is why 
what we are doing is establishing a congregation is especially holy because there are high stakes here. And we don't have any history to blame on how things turn out. If we get it wrong, we can't say, well, we inherited that way of doing it as a church. No, we're starting from ground zero. And because of that, we want to walk with open hands and with a heart towards the Lord saying, what do you want this to look like? As we go into our fast, I want to ask him, what do you want this to look like? I don't want to recreate a wheel that is not the wheel he wants created. 1 Peter 4.17 says, for it is time for judgment to begin. Where does it begin? It begins with God's household, and it begins with us. And what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? In many ways, Resurrection Sunday is for the masses. I am so excited to celebrate. There is so much hope in celebrating on Easter. But Palm Sunday is really for getting our house in order and for saying, he is coming. How are those who have some revelation of him, how are we walking it out? Are we recognizing that a king is in our presence and are we responding to him in the right way? This is a big week. I look forward to celebrating with you next week in person, worshiping for those of us that have said, oh, I would have cried, have cried out, Hosanna. We're going to get our chance together. That's important. But there's a lot that goes on between now and then, and I would encourage you to examine your own heart as he wants to get his house in order so that we recognize the sacrifice that is paid and we respond to that king in a kingly way. Father, we thank you. You are good and you are kind. Lord, you could have entered on a horse, on a man of war, from the very beginning and been totally justified, but you came as you came to us on a full, gently declaring peace, extending salvation, extending atonement that doesn't just cover our sins, but you say cast them as far as the east is from the west. And we say, thank you. We, we acknowledge you as this king. We, we recognize your kingly role in our lives. We take that seriously, God, as we establish a congregation of how you want your house put in order. We ask for great wisdom in these days. These are the days that will chart the course for many people for a long time. Give us great wisdom, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.